The gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. You can find it on page 739 of the Pew Bible. In this gospel lesson, Jesus forces us to count the cost of following him. Please stand as you are able for the gospel. From Luke 14, beginning at verse 25, we read in Jesus' name. Now great crowds accompanied him, that is Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you? Desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout our lives, there are many times when we must count the cost. And we count the cost for many different decisions. Our minds probably think of financial decisions first, although it's not just financial decisions that we count the cost for. Uh, But when we do, whether they're large transactions or they might be small, we count the cost. At least for me, there's always some level of deliberation. Sometimes I spend a long time deliberating. Sometimes it's just a passing thought, but I always give some thought to it. Even if I'm walking through the store and I pick up something I want and there's no price tag on it. I might buy it anyway just because I think, well, I want this enough that whatever they're charging is probably okay. Sometimes I don't. Even that is counting the cost. But I always give some thought to it. Now, most people probably aren't as neurotic as I am, but I assume that you still give some thought to at least most of your transactions. For me, there are two basic questions that I ask myself whenever counting the cost. Really, there are more than two, but I'm going to spare you and give you just two. Your questions might be similar or they might be a little bit different, but I at least consider these two basic questions. First, is it worth it? That is, is it a fair price? Is this thing worth the cost? And second, do I have what it takes? Can I afford this thing? And either of those questions can be a deal breaker. Sometimes a thing is worth the price, but we can't afford it. Other times we can afford it, but it might not be worth it. When I was in college, I was, well, I would say on the humble side of poor. Uh, I even remember standing in the grocery store aisle 
counting the cost between ramen noodles and off-brand ramen noodles. That's how poor I was. <laughs> and so there were many things that I wanted because I covet things. <laughs> and I could look at them and I could say, yeah, that's a fair price, but I don't have it. <laughs> During those poor college years, my friends got me into skiing, which is not a great activity for poor college kids, <laughs> but we tried to make it work. And so we would go on the evenings when it was dark and the Lift tickets were cheaper, but the hills, they were either iced over or slushy. We didn't really care. I remember buying my first pair of skis. And the main reason that I bought them was so that I wouldn't have to pay for rentals anymore. $13 a pop was kind of adding up for a poor college kid. And so I counted the cost, or I thought I did anyway. I figured that if I could find a used set of skis for $100, well, they would pay for themselves after eight uses, right? New skis, I eventually discovered, would have been a better idea, but I couldn't afford them. And so I found this very used pair of skis on eBay for less than $100. And I used them a few times. I don't know if I got to eight uses with them. Uh, one time I, I went off this little jump, not a big jump, because I wasn't that good, but just a little bit. And as I landed, the right ski just snapped in half. My cheap skis were not worth it. I had counted the cost and counted wrongly. We count the cost in other ways as well. Maybe you're thinking of trying out for the basketball team or taking an advanced calculus class. You count the cost. First, is it worth it? These activities are demanding. They require hard work. Is it worth it? Am I willing to put in the time? Maybe you have some video game time you can give up, but you don't want to give up family, or church. We also need to ask the other question. Do I even have what it takes? Maybe you don't know how to dribble a basketball. Maybe you only barely passed Algebra 1. It might seem worth it, but you might not have the skill. You might not have what it takes. And so we ask these two basic questions. Is it worth it? And do I have what it takes? Now, Let's apply these two questions to the gospel lesson, what Jesus teaches us about the cost of discipleship. You want to follow Jesus. Is it worth it, and do you have what it takes? Jesus tells us the cost. Jesus is not a bait-and-switch preacher. There are no hidden fees. He's honest and upfront about the cost. He doesn't want anyone to have the wrong idea. We see this happen a few times during Jesus' ministry where he accumulates a large following like he does here. But whenever this happens, he sees that they probably don't understand who he really is and what he is really about. And so he often says something to offend the crowds and drive them away. One of the prime examples of this is in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000. All these people are following him, and he says something so offensive that at the end of it, only his 12 apostles are left. Everybody else says, that, that's too hard for me to accept. I'm leaving. And here, when great crowds accompany Jesus, he turns and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. Count it. It's heavy, isn't it? Now, I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. Jesus does not actually want you to hate your mother and father. He also does not want you to leave your wife or your children. That would be a sin, and therefore it would actually be the opposite of what Jesus calls you to do when you follow him. And one of our clues here is that Jesus doesn't just talk about hating father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister, but also and especially our very own lives. The point is that every person in our lives, including ourselves, especially ourselves, must take second place to Jesus. And so Jesus does not desire or command hate, but the point is this. Are you willing to give up those people for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to give up yourself for the sake of Christ? Now, this is a real question. It's a practical question. Many Christians have lived and even died this truth. For many, following Christ has meant literally being disowned by their mother or father or having their spouse leave them. For many, it has even meant giving up their own lives. Are you willing to endure this for the sake of following Christ? Are you willing to hate father, mother, wife, child, brother, sister, and even yourself? It reminds us a little bit of when the Lord commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, God did not let Isaac die, and he was never going to. But he wanted Abraham to fear, love, and trust in him above all things. And so, are you willing to hate everyone, including yourself, in order to follow Christ? Are you willing to bear the cross in order to follow Christ? And when we talk about bearing the cross, remember that the cross is an instrument of torture and death. Sometimes we use the language of bearing our cross to mean something less than death. Like if you have an illness or some other kind of negative circumstance that holds you back, you might say, that's my cross to bear. Now, I don't mean to minimize any of those struggles because they're very real and we have often have suffering and affliction in this life, right? But that's not really what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus talks about bearing our crosses and coming after him, he means that we must follow him into death. He's talking especially about martyrdom. He's talking about being murdered for the sake of our Christian faith. Now, it turns out that not all of Jesus' disciples pay this cost. I don't think I personally know anyone who's been murdered for their Christian faith. I kind of suspect, though, that by the end of my life, I will. I've told you before, and I will tell you again, that it can happen here in the United States. It can happen everywhere. Now, you might know that the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights protects the free exercise of religion. And that means, at the very least, that the government will not kill you for being a Christian. You should also know that the First Amendment only protects you if people pay attention to it. Whenever we decide to not pay attention to it, then it doesn't have any power. 
And many parts of the world have gone through these cycles where Christianity spread and grew, perhaps even becoming the majority religion. And yet it often became illegal and Christians were murdered without consequence. It has happened in many places and it can happen anywhere. And this is simply the nature of Christianity. So I'm not so much talking about the nature of politics here, but the nature of Christianity, that a world of darkness hates it. Now we may, turns out to be naively, we may think that Jesus' focus on forgiveness would be attractive to a world that is consumed by sin, but it's not. This world is so consumed by sin that it loves darkness instead of the light. And so when forgiveness comes along, the world's reaction is kill it. And Jesus teaches us this in many places. If the world hated him, it will hate us too. Now we probably think, since we've grown accustomed to this, we probably think of a long and peaceful life as the norm and martyrdom as the exception. The Bible has it the other way around. We should think of our long and peaceful lives as the exception and martyrdom as the norm. And that is the cost that Jesus tells us to count. And so, are you willing to be murdered for your Christian faith? We may not really know the answer to that question until that day comes. But if you're already sitting there thinking, well, I mean, I, I like Christianity and all, but dying for it seems kind of extreme. Well, if you're already thinking that, you might be in trouble already. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to say, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't want part of your devotion. He doesn't want part of your life. He wants all of it, even if that means that you testify to him by dying. So this is one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. On the one hand, salvation is free. We talk about that a lot, and we're going to continue to talk about that. Forgiveness is free. There is nothing you must give. There is nothing you can give in order to become God's child. But on the other hand, as God's child, you belong to him. As someone redeemed by Jesus, you belong to him. He purchased you from sin, death, and the devil. And the end, of, the end result of this is not that you belong to yourself, but that you belong to Christ. He owns your life. That is the cost. So, is it worth it? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, nothing else in all of the world is worth anything. Now, how do we know this? Simply because Jesus rose from the dead. And when we talk about that, we mean that his physical body, which had been nailed to the cross and died and laid in a tomb, came back to life. We have certainty of this as a historical fact because there were dozens, even hundreds of eyewitnesses who testified to this. Some of them wrote it down and many of them were willing to follow Jesus into death for this faith. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead and he lives forever as our Savior and King. And 
If Jesus rose from the dead, then it is absolutely worth it to follow him into death. Because then what does following him into death mean? It means that death is not really death, but we follow him through death and into eternal life. We follow him to where he is now. And so when someone comes to you with a sword or a gun or a cross, know this. There is nothing that they can take from you that Jesus will not give back to you a hundredfold in the resurrection of the dead. And so belonging to Christ, despite the cost that Jesus tells us to count here, belonging to Christ is a gracious thing. It does not mean that Jesus uses us for his own benefit. He does not extract value from us as a harsh master would use a slave. Rather, Jesus always uses his authority over us to do what is good for us. He calls us to things that we may not like, and that's simply our sinful nature, rebelling against what is truly good. Jesus calls us to love him above all things because that is good for us even if that means death. That's the cost, and it is most certainly worth it. And now for the other question. Do I have what it takes? The answer is a big no. I do not have what it takes to follow Jesus in this life or into death. I love myself above all things. Perhaps you can relate. That is the nature of fallen and and sinful humanity. I love myself above all things. Jesus calls me to renounce everything for his sake, and I can't do it. We, We catch a glimpse of Jesus teaching this in the two little parables that he tells. They're parables of counting the cost and what happens when we don't have enough. First, it's like building a tower. We might spend all that we have laying a foundation, but then not have enough left to finish it. Or second, it's like a king with 10,000 men going to war against another king with 20,000, and that's not going to work. You've spent everything that you have for nothing. If you start out building a tower or a house or whatever it is, but you use up all your money on the foundation, you don't have a half a tower or a half a house. You have a foundation for nothing, which is... Exactly the same as having nothing. (laughs) If an army of 10,000 goes against an army of 20,000, you don't get half a win. You get a loss and you retreat with something much less than 10,000. And if I pay $100 for a bad pair of skis and they break, I don't have $100 worth of skis. I have nothing. I've given up my life and got nothing in return. We do not have what it takes. This is most illustrated, or the best illustration in the Bible that I can think of, is this. Jesus' disciples on the evening before his crucifixion. Jesus was going to the cross, literally, the next day to die. And Jesus told them that they would all fall away. To Peter, who was the most enthusiastic about following Jesus, to him Jesus said, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But they all insisted, and Peter insisted the most. And Peter promised to go with Jesus to death. The others all said the same thing. They failed. 
They had counted the cost enough to know that it was worth it, but they did not rightly count their own strength. They did not have what it takes, and neither do we. Instead of trying to lay our own foundation, we must build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We must build it on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which is the word of God. And in this world, we face a power far greater than we are. We face the schemes of the devil. And we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I can't win. I don't have what it takes. But my only hope is Jesus Christ. He must sustain me. He must bring me through. You are weak, but he is strong. And we remember those disciples again, who all fell away that night of Jesus' death. Eventually, sometime after they were given the Holy Spirit, they went to death for Christ's sake. Where they had failed and fallen before, they stood firm because Jesus brought them through that. There's a prayer that we use in the rite of confirmation, and I don't remember it from my own confirmation, probably because I thought I was pretty strong. But now it always strikes me while confirming our young people in the Christian faith. It strikes me because right after we have them stand here and make these promises before God and before the congregation that they're going to be faithful, we pray for their weakness. And so I'm going to leave you with this prayer, which is still my prayer for them as well as for all of us, including myself. And so hear this as a prayer for you. They are weak. Strengthen them with your might. They are to meet a dangerous world. Guide them with your counsel. They will experience many temptations. Help them to resist and overcome. In every hour of need and trial, comfort them with your Holy Spirit. Help them to watch and pray and to seek diligently in word and sacrament the nourishment of your grace. May they stand strong in you and in the power of your word, confessing before a watching world their faith in you with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.